Bibles handy, which hopefully you have. We're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and also Titus chapter 2. This morning we're going to lay something of a platform for what I'll be, the direction I'll be ministering on over the next few Sunday mornings. Possibly take us through till Christmas. We will see. Amen. Titus uh, was a young man who worked together with the Apostle Paul. Most of us are aware of that. He and Timothy were both referred to as Paul's sons in the faith. Uh, It seems that he probably was involved in some capacity in their conversion experience, but also that he trained them and they were continuing in ministry under the oversight of the Apostle Paul. Seems to have possibly been something of an age difference, not exactly sure how much, but Paul was definitely the senior minister in that situation, and Timothy and Titus were part of, not the only young men, there's, there's quite a group of young people that, and other men, not necessarily all in the same age bracket, that Paul worked with, but Titus and Timothy seemed to be particularly close to the Apostle Paul. And so the epistle to Titus begins with, um, just give us a bit of an overview, begins with Paul reaffirming his own call as an apostle. He was, that was not uncommon when he wrote uh, epistles. He reaffirmed the fact that the Lord had called him to that office and that we have hope of eternal life and that that hope is manifest through the preaching of God's word. Paul apparently felt very strongly that the preaching that was committed unto him was a great responsibility to preach the Word of God. And that Titus, also Timothy, if you read those epistles, also shared that same responsibility. Uh, It was not just, well, you know, we're looking for somebody to fill in a gap. It was a God-ordained call for these men to preach the gospel. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you have that, starting at verse 18, says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. This is not the Lord uh, speaking about disdain for intelligence, but rather a dependency upon natural thinking and wisdom for spiritual things. And verse 20 says, Where is the wise and where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, not in the wisdom of man, but in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. So God decided and declared in His wisdom that men would not know him through their wisdom, through their own thinking. Uh, There's nothing wrong with study. There's nothing wrong with applying ourselves to learning and to knowledge. And in fact, I can think that's very valuable. And if you have those abilities and that is the direction that God gives to your life, they are well worth having. This is just a segue for a moment, but in some places there's a a bit of an anti-education thinking amongst Christianity that none of us should get educated, that we should all just trust in the Lord. Well, I would suggest scripturally that's a fallacy. 
The Apostle Paul was a highly educated man. If he lived in our society, I would think he would have had at least one PhD. He was at that level. Not only that, Brother David Bernard, who is the general superintendent of the UPCI, is a highly educated man. And if you're anti-education, then every book that's in your library, particularly those of you that are in ministry, you need to take those and throw those away and work it all out yourself. So there's nothing wrong with those things. But the, the concept or the principle that is being communicated here is that knowing God is not ascertained through academic process. But there is a place for study. Then it says in the second part of verse 21, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Again, we've heard it said before, but it does not say it pleased God by foolish preaching. And unfortunately, there's no shortage of that in the world today. Uh, there was a, a prophet that some of you know, so I won't mention his name. He comes from a part of Africa where there are a lot of prophets who made a prophecy about the outcome of the U.S. election just recently. And he got it wrong. And he had a 50-50 chance and still managed to get his prophecy wrong. Now, if I was that man, I'd be glad that I don't live in the Old Testament because if a prophet got it wrong in the Old Testament, they take you out and stone you to death. But there's, there's an indication there that perhaps he's not the prophet that he may think he is. Amen. But there are two things that I want to point out before we go any further in Titus regarding preaching from what the Apostle Paul writes. First of all, those that are called to preach need to take that responsibility very seriously and to preach his word. Not our words, not human reasoning, not human philosophy, but the Word of God and the principles that are found therein. Now, years ago, there, there was a thing in, in society when it came to kids, you know, you possibly all heard the expression, children should be seen and not heard. Now, I don't believe that's a good principle, but around the same time, there was, when, we are, when our kids are small, sometimes they're taught, don't speak unless you're spoken to. Now, again, I think we, it's good to have more involvement with our kids, and I'm not endorsing either of those phrases. But as preachers go, that second one is good, that we should not speak unless we're spoken to. Or in other words, what we preach, we need to hear from him. He speaks to us, and that needs to be what we speak. And so it, it shouldn't be just whatever we happen to think is good or whatever's going on, but we need to speak as we are spoken to. That's the first thing. And the second thing about preaching is that all of us, doesn't matter who you are, all of us, even those that do preach and all those that don't, need to hear the preached word of God. We need to hear it to be saved and we need to hear it to stay saved. You need to hear the preaching of God's word. You need to have that regularly in your life. It is God's ordained pattern. It says that God chose in his wisdom that by the foolishness of preaching that we would be saved. Now, that's not just talking about your conversion experience, but in an ongoing way, a very important ingredient in our lives as believers is to hear the preaching of God's word to hear that fresh word from God, that fresh bread that God wants us to have in our, in our lives because God knows what we need. He knows the things that are going on. He knows what we need better than we do. And it is through the anointed, directed preaching of God's word 
that we are fed, that we are guided, that we are corrected, that we are rebuked if need be, whatever the case may be, we need to be under the sound of a preacher. It doesn't matter whether they, you think about last Sunday morning, we had Brother Jacobs in there who's been preaching for 40 years and got a lot of understanding, a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom. Or tonight when Brother Moses steps up to preach who probably hasn't preached 10 times yet. It's still the preaching of God's Word. And if we approach it from that platform and that, that understanding that when I come to His house, I am expecting Him to speak to me, He will. We should not always have the mindset that if I don't hear anything new, then I got nothing out of a service. We need to have new understanding and our understanding does need to grow. But being in God's house is not always about something new. And as preachers, we've got to be careful that we're not always looking for something new because that will take us sometimes on a path where we're creating our own new idea. A lot of preaching, and particularly a lot of pastoring, is telling people things they already know. It's reminding them. There's not a lot of things that I stand up here and tell you that you haven't heard in one form or another, but we need to be reminded. When you're going through a difficult situation, you know, at least in your mind, that yes, God is with me, that he will not forsake me, that he will provide. We can all say those things, but there is still something about somebody standing up here under the anointing of the Spirit and preaching those same concepts that you may have heard dozens of times because they are timely for the right now. And so we need the preaching of God's Word. Amen. And so Titus is being taught, he's a preacher, he's obviously involved in the ministry and Paul is continuing with his training. And when we go a little further in chapter 1, Paul reminds Titus of the reason that he's been left on the island of Crete. He left him in Crete. He said, I left you there to set things in order that are wanting. Or in other words, there were some, some things that weren't happening properly or were happening the wrong way or the exact details are unclear, but but Paul said, I want you to sort those things out. He also said, I want you to ordain elders in every city. Titus had the responsibility under Paul's authority to select people to lead different groups of believers, whether they were smaller groups or bigger groups. Titus had that responsibility to do that. Amen. And Paul, in the latter part of chapter 1 of the epistle of Paul to Titus, Paul actually gives Titus a series of qualifications or things that Titus needs to look for in the people that he is going to appoint as leaders. He doesn't just say, pick the guy with the best voice or the guy with the biggest house or the one with the most money or the one who, whatever the particular thing, but he gives a list of things. He said, these are the kind of qualities that you're looking for. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that every candidate ticked every box perfectly because they were, the church there was still fairly young church in Crete had not been there for 10, 20, 30 years. And so some of those believers were still growing. But there were obviously people there that Paul believed had some of these qualities, if not possibly most of them. And, Paul, and, and Titus was to look for people that were qualified. But he was also told, he was warned that there would be people there that would be troublesome, that would talk a lot of empty talk, and that they would deceive people. And the apostle Paul said to Titus, 
Those people, you put your arm around them, you love them, you just treat them kindly. No, he said you rebuke them sharply. Now, whatever way you look at that, that's an unpleasant conversation. But he said you rebuke them sharply. Why? That they might straighten up and that their walk would match their talk. There was a lot of empty talk going on. And then we move into chapter 2, and Paul writes that the older men and women, if you read that yourself later on, you'll see that there's instruction for the aged men and the aged women. Sounds like you know, a side of beef, aged beef. But he gives instructions. Now, I believe that primarily he was talking about people that were older in the natural people that had been around a little while, that possibly had kids and grandkids and had some of life's experience. But also there is that role of people that have been serving the Lord longer. They have that responsibility to be an example and, and, and to give some teaching to those that were younger. The older men and the older women were to avoid certain behaviors. There were things they were, were instructed to, to stay away from and not to do. And they were to be examples and teachers to the younger men and the younger women. And Titus has told himself, the Apostle Paul said to him, that he would speak sound doctrine and that he himself would be a good example or pattern. And the reason, one of the reasons for that was that he would not give, we would say, ammunition to those that would criticize the church. You know, he, he was told, don't give them, you know, don't let, don't let them be ashamed. Those that would speak badly of you, he said, basically, don't give them any ammo. That's what we would say. You know, they're going to be critical anyway. They're going to have a bad spirit anyway, but don't give them the bullets to fire at the gun. And, and that's, in, I guess, we would say, that's possibly how we would say that. Then there's instruction given to servants who are instructed to conduct themselves in an honest manner. Now, it talks about not purloining, I think, is what the King James says, which basically means don't steal. Don't take things that aren't yours. You know, servants may be thinking there were some things their, their masters didn't need, so I'll just take that to my house and... They won't notice it's gone. But even the servants were given instruction on how to live in a godly manner and in a, fa in a fashion that the Bible, the word the Bible uses is that they would adorn the doctrine of God. In other words, that their conduct and their behavior would make the church and the gospel look good, would be a good witness. You know, that they would, their behavior would make, would make people go, hey, there must be something about this Christianity thing. Not well, these servants that go to church are just the same as these other ones that don't. They all steal off me. They're all lazy. They're all this. They're all that. But rather that their conduct would adorn the doctrine of God. Amen. Bless the Lord. Then Paul goes, where am I up to? And then we get to the verse. Verse 11 is where I want to particularly uh, bring your attention to this morning because these few verses here are going to be our platform for the next few weeks. So there's a lot of instruction from Paul to Titus that Titus is instructed to pass on. He says, teach them this, set things in order, tell the older ladies and the older men this, tell the servants that. There's a lot of instruction about how they should be behaving. And then in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope. Or in other words, this is why we're doing it. This is why we want to do these things is because we're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So the grace of God, verse 11, brings salvation. Or in other words, it makes salvation possible. It's appeared, the Bible says, or it's been made manifest, or it's shone like a light upon all men. Now, Wednesday night, we spoke about what it means, at least to a certain extent, to be a disciple. And we spoke of how that it's only possible because of the grace and the mercy of God that you and I come to the Lord in whatever state we are. The, the old cliche is you don't get good to get God, is that you get God to get good. And so we come to the Lord warts and all, we might say. All our brokenness, all the junk that might be in our lives, all the problems, whatever it might be, we come to the Lord with them. And that's just as we are. And we, we spoke about the old hymn the other night that says, just as I am, we come to thee. Unfortunately, the understanding of grace is perverted in a lot of, of present-day Christianity to, to mean that it's just kind of this license to, to do what you want, to live how you want, to... I'm under grace. It's all about grace and, and how, you know, what you do is not really important. And, and then when certain behaviors or actions are taught against in the church or they're challenged, people say, don't judge me. I'm under grace. And while there is a certain place for not judging one another, we are also told that there are things that we should judge. There are things that we need to look at and decide, hey, is this what God wants or is this not what God wants? But the understanding of grace is, is, well, the right word is probably perverted. Because grace is, is not given that we might just say, nobody can say anything about how I live. But it is true that we are under grace. That is definitely true. It is definitely true that we cannot save ourselves by the goodness of our own actions. Now, obedience to the gospel is not the same thing as saving yourself by your own good actions. Some people say that when we talk about the need to be baptized in Jesus' name or the need to be filled with the Holy Ghost, that we are telling people that they have to do things to save themselves. That is not what we are saying. We are saying that you have to obey the Word of God by faith. When people talk about works, and the Scripture does say that you cannot save yourself by works, what it's saying is, I cannot be good enough. I cannot rescue enough cats out of trees, walk elderly ladies across the street, to help somebody change a tire, whatever good deed you want to think of. I cannot do enough of those things to suddenly reach a point where the bell rings and I'm good enough in God's sight. My works, my own efforts cannot save me. But it is equally true, just as we cannot be saved without grace, it is equally true that when we come to God just as we are, if you want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you cannot stay as you are because you cannot continue in a sinful lifestyle. Romans chapter 5, and let's turn there together. Romans chapter 5 and verse 19 says, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. So 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that today, but what that's telling us is that when God gave the law, what it did was it exposed man's sinful nature and exposed things that were wrong. And so all of a sudden, we're all guilty of of an abundance of offenses. Then in the second part of verse 20, it says, But where sin abounded, where there was plenty of sin, grace did much more abound. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. It doesn't say that grace might reign unto eternal life, but it says that grace might reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And then those of you that were in Brother Jacobson's session at the minister's group will know, ignore the chapter break and read on. The first verse of chapter 6 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if, if grace is more abundant than sin, if we look around in the world and we see, yes, our world is in darkness, there is sin is on the increase, man's depravity seems to get worse and worse, but the Bible tells us that grace is bigger than that, does that mean, well, just it's just sin? If grace is still bigger, then surely I can do whatever I like because grace is going to have me covered. No, no, that's why Paul said, God forbid. God forbid. He didn't say that's just a misunderstanding. He said, no, no, he said, that's, that's, a, that's an abuse of grace. The gospel message is all about bringing your brokenness to Jesus, bringing your sin and your shame and not being turned away. And I thank God for that. I pray that we would never turn people away because of sin, but that this would be a place where people can bring their brokenness to Jesus and that he can heal and that he can restore. And we need to always thank the Lord for that. But the new life that we begin when we are born of water and spirit, is one where we are called to be disciples. We are called to be separate from sin, to walk in the spirit, and to not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's the instruction that we are given. In fact, I would say that the vast majority of the New Testament, or the epistles, is written to churches and individuals, giving instruction and correction toward that goal, that goal of not living a sinful life, of living a life that pleases the Lord. Amen. So grace, without grace, we cannot be saved. Without grace, we cannot stay saved. But grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card that whenever you do anything wrong, you can just pull out that card and say, I've got grace, I'm covered. It does not work like that. A few years ago when my family went to the USA for a holiday, we went to one of those crazy theme parks where they put you on rides that make all your internal organs get shaken around and you feel like you're going to die and then you get off and say, that was awesome, let's get back on again. And we bought tickets to get into that theme park and, and we bought some special tickets that allowed us to avoid lining up. You know, you go to these things and there's hundreds of people queued up and they stand in line for an hour in the sun for a ride that lasts 45 seconds. We bought these special tickets that there was a separate door that we could go in so we didn't have to line up. So all these poor people lining up and we got off the ride and went back through this door and got back on the the ride again. You you kind of feel bad for a moment for the people lining up, but that passes quickly when you get back on the ride. (laughs) But the point is, grace does not bypass everything in life. If you sin, you've still got to line up and deal with the thing. You've got to bring it back to the Lord and make it right. 
it is a misunderstanding and an abuse of grace to think that it means I can just do whatever I want because he loves me, he gave me grace, I can't save myself, it's all great. That is a complete misunderstanding of grace. Amen. The Lord gave a parable in Matthew 22 and a, 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 par- and a parable that is possibly the same or at least similar in Luke 14 about a feast or a wedding that a certain man prepared. And he sent out invitations to guests and for whatever reason his guests couldn't come or wouldn't come, chose not to come. And so this king, this man, this ruler, he said to his servants, go out and get, get, get whoever you can find. Go out in the highways and the byways. And, and one, of the, one of the accounts actually says that they did that and they came back and he said there's still room. And he, he sent them out and he brought in those that were cripples, that were, couldn't see, that, that all these things wrong with them. In other words, he was saying the invitation, the original guest list said no, so I'm extending this invitation to all people. And we can see there there's an example of the fact that the Bible says that Jesus came unto his own and they received him not. The Jews rejected him and so the gospel went to the Gentiles and thank God for that today. But in that, in that parable, you see, I believe it's the one in Matthew 22, where the, the ruler or the king comes into the feast Finally, they've got all these guests together. It's been a bit of a mad dash at the end and all these last-minute invitations. And, but everybody's there. And he comes into the feast, and the Bible says he sees a man sitting there who doesn't have on a wedding garment. And he says, why aren't you wearing a wedding garment? And the Bible says the man was speechless. He didn't have any defense. Now, we read that and we go, well, that's a bit harsh. Maybe he couldn't afford a nice suit to go to the wedding. But the tradition and the culture was that when you gave the invitation, you provided the garments. And so what was happening there was this man has been offered a clean change of clothes that was suitable for the wedding, but he chose to reject them. It does not say that the king said, well, we respect your rights to your own choices and your individuality. No, it says they tied him up hand and foot and threw him out. So he was invited to come in, but he was not allowed to stay in unchanged. Grace says, come in from the highways and the byways. If you're crippled, if you're blind, if you're maimed, if you're whole, come in. The feast is prepared. The master's laid a table. He wants you to participate. But when he brings you into his house and his family, he wants to change you. I'm not talking about clothes today. I'm talking about a transformation that happens within us. Amen. We come just as we are. But if he says, I want to change you, and we say, I will not be changed, we find ourselves in a place of confrontation where we will be thrown out. Even in Luke chapter 15, in the story of the prodigal son, we, most of us have known that story for a long time, but a young man lives in a great house, takes his, his portion of the inheritance, goes out and lives a riotous life and wastes it all, finds himself in the midst of a famine in a pig pen working for a pig farmer at such a low point that he's even thinking about eating what the pigs are eating. And I mean, for the Jewish culture, there, there are reason, there's a reason that example is given because to be with the pigs was as low as it got because they were unclean animals. You know, that's what sin will do. Sin will take you for a wild ride, but then it will leave you in the pig pen. 
But what happened was eventually this young man said, this is really not a great way to live. I look like a pig, I'm eating like a pig, I smell like a pig. And he, he came to himself and he got up and he went back to his father's house. And in his mind, he said, I'm going to go back to dad and I'm going to say, dad, I blew it. I messed up, messed my life up. Please just let me be a servant. Let me mow the grass. Let me wash, the, well, probably not the car, but well, let me clean the chariot. Let me feed the horses. Let me, let me be a servant. And the Bible says that when he was still a fair way away, that the father saw him. Now, there's, there's a lot of things we can take out of that. Number one is that when the young man left, the father didn't chase him down the street. But at the same time, when the young man chose to come home, the father was looking. Nobody had to come and get the father and say, look, I know you're really busy, sir, and you're in the middle of doing something, but there's a young man at the gate that's claiming to be your son. The father was looking and saw him when he was afar off and recognized his son. He probably didn't look the same. He probably lost a lot of weight from living with the pigs. His clothes would have been horrible. His hair was probably long and unsheveled. But a father recognized his wayward son. And the Bible says that he ran to him and he embraced him. He probably stank. But dad loved the boy enough that the smell of the pig pen didn't matter. But you read on, it doesn't say, so they brought him into the house and they sent a message to the family, don't say anything about how he smells, it's okay. No, it says that they brought him out fresh clothing and shoes. It doesn't say that he had a wash, but I'm pretty sure it was in there somewhere. They cleaned him up. They gave him a new outfit. They put shoes on his feet. They put a ring on his finger, and they restored him to the relationship of a son. So he could come as he was, but he could not stay as he was. He could not bring the pig pen into the father's house. The Lord had to change him and had to transform him. Amen. He knew, the young man knew that to return to being a son, it had to include living in a fashion that honored his father. Amen. So let's go back to Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. Then verse 12 says, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace is not only bringing salvation, but according to this passage, grace is teaching us that there is a way that we are required to live in this present world. There's no argument that we cannot do it ourselves. We understand that. We can't do it ourselves. Just as we can't save ourselves... We can't live godly on our own. We need grace all the way through. But grace is teaching us, in fact, the same grace that makes it possible for us to choose to be saved, because that's what it is. It's a choice. You choose to take advantage of God's grace. The same grace that makes that choice possible teaches us that we can choose to stay saved and choose to live a life that honors God and is victorious over sin and the enemy. Amen. In this present world, whatever the present is that God's people have faced throughout history, grace has always taught them that they could be victorious. There has never been a level of corruption or perversion in society and culture that God could not keep his people through. And we say, but the world has changed. Yes, it has. 
There are things happening we never thought would happen. Yes, there are. There are lifestyle choices and things that people are saying are healthy and wholesome and we know that they're not. We know that this world is upside down. But in the midst of all of that, the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that we can do, we can deny ungodliness and, and wickedness and live soberly and righteously in this present world. You have to understand, we think, well, you know, in Israel it was different. Titus wasn't in Israel. Titus was in Crete. Crete did not have the Shema. They did not have Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They didn't have the history of Abraham and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs. Crete had idolatry. Crete had immorality. Crete had all manner of perversions that went on in the ancient Greek kingdom. The ancient Greek Empire, do some research, read up on it. There was all manner of wickedness that took place. That was the present world that Titus had to stand up and say, we can live godly in this present world by the grace of God. Amen. God would not allow statements to be included in Scripture if they were not possible. The Lord's not going to put things in the Scripture and say, let's see if they can do this. Anything that he's put in there, he knows that we can do through him. Not through ourselves, but through him. And so, a little unusual perhaps to give a title at the end of a lesson rather than the beginning, but for the next few Sunday mornings, I'm going to be teaching about lessons from grace. Lessons from grace, the things that grace wants to teach us. Amen. On Wednesday night, we spoke about the wonderful experience of Pentecost and how awesome it is to be born again of water and spirit, as the Word of God says. And every time I talk to somebody that has freshly received the Holy Ghost, they understand why it is that it's hard for us to explain what it's like. And you tell people, well, it's a bit like this and a bit like that. And then when they receive the Holy Ghost, they get this, now I understand what they were talking about. Because being filled with the Spirit is such an awesome experience, it's difficult to explain. It's difficult to explain, but I thank God that we believe and practice being filled with the Holy Ghost. I, I don't want to imagine, can you imagine, if you would for a moment, we come in here this morning, we all come to church, we sing some songs, kids go upstairs, I stand up here and talk for 30, 45 minutes, and there's no Holy Ghost in the building. Imagine what the worship service would be like without the presence of God. I mean, we've got some talented musicians, but I'm here for the Spirit of God. I didn't come for a concert. We didn't come to listen to them and say, man, they can sing. And I love our music team, but what I love most is that they like to worship. And it's the presence of God and the Spirit of God that makes this worth coming. That's what it's about. And we come in, we don't often think about that, but you try if you can and imagine this morning service with no anointing of the Holy Ghost, no presence of God. You know, if, you know, you might say, well, you do have services like that sometimes. Yeah, there are some services where things seem harder than others. God's still here. But imagine doing it again next Sunday morning. The Sunday morning after that, we come in and we just go through the motions, singing some songs. Oh, that brother's out of key again. Wish that sister wouldn't clap so loud in my ear. Why is that put, you know, imagine our services without the Spirit of God. Don't take that for granted. Value that. Treasure that. Amen. 
But we often come to this place together to be refreshed, to be renewed in the Spirit of God. And there are sometimes there are services that it seems the Spirit of God falls so powerfully that we don't have the words to describe what it was like in the house of God. I was away just recently and Sister Sheila sent me a message and that was basically what her text message said. It was hard for her to describe how the Spirit of God moved in the service that morning. And I love to hear that when I'm away that the Spirit of God still here reminds me that it's not about me and you, it's about Him. Amen. We have those services where it seems like it's just, it's overflowing. Or if I feel much more of the presence of God, I feel like I might burst. And we have those, and I thank the Lord for those services. And, and living for this, we touched on some of this Wednesday night, but the Lord wants these things to be a part of our lives. He does. He wants us to feel His presence. But we've got to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of living from experience to experience. Going from high to high, going from Holy Ghost buzz to Holy Ghost buzz like some kind of an addict. Because if you know anything about addiction, when people have serious addiction, in between the highs is not much fun. There's the depths, the despair, the desperation to get back to the next high. And I'll be honest, there are some times I've felt desperate to get to God's house. But in between those experiences, there needs to be a relationship. The Lord does not want us to be on a spiritual, emotional roller coaster where one second you're up at the top and the next second you're down at the bottom and you don't know what's next. There are highs and lows in life. That happens. Anybody whose life is always perfectly smooth is probably dead. They're flatlined. You know, but life goes up and life comes down. And it, that's how it is. The Bible talks about the seasons come and go. There, there is rain that falls on the just and on the unjust. We touched about how on Wednesday night about how the Lord actually led his disciples into storms. There are those times when life is not always up and smooth sailing. But the scripture says that even though there are those highs and lows, grace wants to teach us that we can deny ungodliness. And unrighteousness and worldly lust. We can live soberly. We can live godly in this present world. And I want to emphasize, I don't, what, I, what I do not want people to misunderstand, I don't want people thinking, well, I can't come to the house of the Lord because I need the Lord. That's not the point. That's not what I'm trying to say. The house of God should always, 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 and always be a refuge, be a place where you and I can come, be encouraged. Receive strength, be refreshed, be renewed, receive instruction, receive whatever it is the Lord wants us to have. And if we have failed the Lord and made mistakes, we can find grace and mercy in His presence. And He is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins, it says in First John, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The house of God must always have that aspect, that we can come. But if week in and week out we are coming to this house and always needing to get right with God or to find the victory that we lost Tuesday afternoon, not long after the week started, or to feel like if I don't get to God's house this Sunday, I don't think I'm going to make it to heaven. If that's the week in, week out pattern, something's not right. 
Yes, there will always be those times. I'm going to be repetitive because I don't want to be misunderstood. There are times when I feel like my week is so messed up, I've got to get to the house of God. I've got to get here and get in his presence and be with his people and, and get some strength and renewal. And refer- We have to have that. But if every single time we come to the house of God, it's because our week's been a disaster. Something's not right. We're on that roller coaster where Sunday is high and the rest of the week is plummeting down into Death Valley. It shouldn't be like that. Amen. The house of God must always be for restoration, renewal, taking hold of the promises of God. But again, if my normal, and this is really what I'm getting to, if my normal setting in life is that my weeks are a disaster and church is my fix-it day, then my challenge to us this morning is that that's not really how the Lord wants it to be. Those experiences are great, but in between those, we've got to walk with Him. We've got to keep His Word, keep the principles of God's Word. And so for the next few Sunday mornings, we're going to be trying to teach some things and hopefully as practically as we can to help us to learn from grace that we can live soberly, righteously, deny ungodliness in this present world and that we don't have to live from experience to experience that by his grace we can live a victorious life we can be overcomers does that mean you'll never have a bad day no it doesn't doesn't mean you'll never have a bad week no let me put my hand up and be as honest as i can i have weeks where i think really don't want to go to church this sunday there's some sunday mornings i get up and forgive me if this makes you think poorly of me but there are some Sunday mornings when the alarm goes off, and if it wasn't for the fact that I know people who are saying, where's Brother Simon? I could quite easily roll over and go back to sleep and pretend it's Saturday. But then I know the phone would ring. Where are you? But listen, if, if that helps me to get here when I don't feel like it, that's all right. And if sometimes the only reason you get here is because you want to be there for your brethren to be able to encourage them, whatever gets you to the house of God sometimes is enough. Because he's faithful. He will give us the strength. Let's stand together this morning.